This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. talked about the debate in 1519 with John Eck. Eck gets him to admit that authority in the church is the real issue rather than indulgences. Um, 1520 is a sort of a big breaking point with his church relations, with Luther's church relations, because obviously the Pope did not receive uh, the 95 Theses and its explanations well. Uh, he wasn't happy about this, so he issued a papal bull. Um, it's it's not, its title was Ex Serge Domine, which just means Arise, O Lord. Um, this warned Luther that if he didn't stop, he, could, he would be excommunicated. Um, Luther's response to this papal bull was to grab it <laughs> and the, the corpus of canon law and to burn them. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he goes into a public place in town and just lights them on fire. Can uh, I ask you a question? Yeah. What is... Tell me exactly what you mean when you say canon law. As a Catholic, what is canon law? Because I kept reading that and I wasn't sure what that really was. It is the built up over time um, collection of church law. Okay, so it's their theology over the years developed at, at can, councils and things like that. Okay. Yeah. And church government, really. Theology of church government. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so Luther burns the papal bull, and in 1520 he just keeps writing and critiquing the church. He has his, you know, all these major treatises come out in 1520. Like we'll talk about the freedom of a Christian tomorrow. There's also like the Babylonian captivity of the church, in which Luther critiques the, you know, the sacramental trappings of the church. Um, and there's some other good writings. You have a couple of them in that book that we had you buy, which. The best reason for getting that one is just because you get the other uh, two main ones. Um, 1521 is when he is summoned before the Diet of Worms. Looks like worms. Um, and th this is where you get that classic statement where he is asked to recant again, but he says, I cannot because my conscience is captive to the word of God. So I'll just, I'll just quote this. He says, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. May God help me. Amen. So that was where he took his stand against not giving in to what he thought would be contrary to his conscience, denying his new understanding of God's righteousness and justification, forgiveness, all of these things. Um, what this wasn't, it wasn't an argument for um, being anti-authority, and it wasn't an argument for sort of individualism, where I am the sole arbiter of truth, and if my conscience disagrees with it, you know, it's wrong. Like, that, that's not what he's going for. But No creed but Christ? Yeah. Right? 
But several historians would argue it, it opens a teeny tiny window in which oh, yeah. the Enlightenment just smashes through, right? I mean, of course, if I, I mean, he, he appeals to conscience ultimately, right? Yeah. It's like, as my conscience is bound to scripture, but it's really his interpretation of scripture. Yeah. And there's a tiny window of modernism that gets opened up here. For sure. And I, I, think, I think that opens it up, but I don't think that's was the intent. No, I don't like um, Because Luther really believed in authority. <laughs> I mean, just whether it's in the house or the church or the larger church, he um, wasn't going to deny the need for authority and of submitting to it. Um, so he, he gets a little more anti-authoritarian as he progresses and... Kidney stones and such. Kidney stones, yeah. <laughs> small, called, small called articles calling the Pope the Antichrist. And it's a good thing that's one of our confessional teachings. Um, which we don't actually have to believe that, by the way. Um, it's a good thing. Um, after this diet, he is excommunicated. And he's considered a criminal. Um, this guy named Fred Frederick the Wise, who was an admirer of Luther and was also... Um, kind of the ruler of Wittenberg, he made it such that Luther could be kidnapped and so that he could escape the diet and um, probably not be killed or taken away to prison where he eventually would have been killed if he refused to recant. Um, so Luther goes away and he hides in Frederick's castle in a town named Wartburg, W-A-R-T-B-U-R-G, um, and he's there for about a year. Um, it's during this time that he starts to translate the New Testament into German because he sees that, you know, this Reformation, this change isn't going to happen apart from the people. The people have to have the Word of God um, in their own language and something which they can read and understand um, so that they too can, can come to see the truth of the gospel. Um, yeah. Can I ask, at this point, how much is he, how popular is he as kind of a celebrity figure for this new thing that's happening? How far is this spreading toward other influencers who are rising up? You know, other reformers and other parts of the, the, the Roman world. Um, what's happening around this time elsewhere? He's making a name for himself for sure. Um, a lot of humanists and academics really liked the things he was arguing for, even you know, someone like Erasmus. Um, we'll talk about his relationship with Erasmus on Wednesday. But you know, there were a lot of people critiquing the church. Um, there were a lot of people who wanted reform, um, but just not in this kind of explosive way. So Luther had a lot of admirers, and it, you can see it even here where this guy Frederick the Wise, very powerful person, sort of putting his power on the line to save this guy. Um, and a lot of, this is about, I guess about this time, just to speak really broadly, Germany and the rest of the Holy Roman Empire start splitting into kind of which ruler thinks the Lutheran reform is good, which thinks it's bad. Because um, a lot of think, like Frederick and some of the others didn't really, they, they weren't all that, they were somewhat interested in theology, but mainly they didn't like the emperor. Yeah. They wanted to stick it to him. Germany was tired of getting taxed and sending it all down to Italy. And so it was just like, we want to kind of be Germans. Um, yeah. And so Luther was a happy recipient of that kind of political 
maneuverable is also present. Oh yeah, there, there's, a, there's just so much stuff going on in the scene politically. <laughs> Um, the political landscape of the Holy Roman Empire is... I don't understand it. It's, I, I, it's, it's baffling to me to try to figure it out, so that's why we're not going to talk about it. Because uh, <laughs> it'd it just take way too much time to disentangle people from why they did things and whose side they were on and was it legitimate. Yeah, or theology, or was it just political? And there were plenty of rulers who did actually like Luther's theology. Um, they could see the merit in it, but that, ne that wasn't necessarily why they always acted the way they did. Um, Luther in Wartburg for about a year, and he returns to Wittenberg. Um, he's just like, we, I'm going to get back there because there, there was stuff to do. Um, there were problems to be addressed. And he goes there and he continues to teach and preach, but there is this break now that he's no longer acting as you know, an official instrument of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, a few years later, in 1525, is when he gets married, um, which happens during the middle of the Peasants' Revolt and a lot of, you know, a lot more turmoil. And Luther's, he's just like, now it's when I'm going to get married. <laughs> and he did it, which I always think is funny. During the middle of, you know, this extremely chaotic time where he's getting pulled a thousand different ways, politically and theolo theologically, um, he, he chooses this to make a statement about the value of, of marriage and of the household. Um, we're, gonna, we're just going to skip to, I mean, 1530, we get the Augsburg Confession, so we're really crystallizing um, the Lutheran Reform as a movement, um, which has a statement that says, this is what we are standing upon. Um, and by 1534, um, Germans could read the Bible in their own language for the first time. And that, that was a huge, huge step in the process of reform. And then finally... So 1534, the Old Testament was also complete? Yeah. Finally, in, in 1530, or 1545, um, this is at the end of Luther's life. Luther had always had health problems. He was you know, extremely busy and active guy, but he had never been... Uh, particularly robust, um, whether it's the kidney stones or, you know, some people, I guess he might have had gout and various other afflictions. Um, but even apart from this, from the, the, you know, the thorn in his side, he was extremely productive. Um, but late in 1545, he was asked to travel to settle a dispute um, among the princes of a town called Mansfeld. And this was a dispute that was really happening between the town and the church. And Luther didn't want to travel. He didn't want to go on this long journey in the middle of the winter. Um, but he did it anyways. He traveled there and he ended up going to Eisleben, which is where he was born. Um, and after he settled the dispute, which took a couple of months to do, it was basically that evening where he started to feel um, severe pains in his chest. And it was the next day um, that he died in 1546 in the exact place where he had been born. And I think it's a poignant fact that um, he traveled there to settle a dispute affecting the town and the church. Um, shows the way that his life was always devoted to the service of the church. Um, he, he just died trying to 
help the church um, get things in order, which is how he spent most of his life going about. Um, when he died, he had written a note to his wife, Katie, and this contains the famous line that says, we are beggars, this is true. Um, I assume you've probably heard that before. Yeah. It's, um, the first half is in German, last half is in Latin. It's kind of a good encapsulation of his theology. He's dying. He says, I have nothing to hold on to of myself. All I am before God is a beggar. And that's the way he went into um, eternal life, just trusting in the promise that all things uh, that have been promised to us are outside ourselves and come to us in Jesus Christ. Um, so that, that is a very quick and dirty overview of Luther's life. Is there any, are there any questions about what we've covered this morning so far? Uh, anything that's fuzzy about Luther's life? He was he was somewhat confined to Wittenberg. I mean, he couldn't. He was free there, but he couldn't travel too far afield. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Because if he went outside the protection of that province, I'm not sure what the word is. Yeah. Then he almost certainly would have been kidnapped and killed or something because yeah. he was under the protection of his prince. Is that is that right? It's almost yeah. like a house arrest, except it was mm-hmm. the region. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so when the reformers went to present um, the Augsburg Confession to the emperor, um, and, and Melanchthon is going through all of this despair about getting things just right, and uh, how am I going to respond? And just all these questions. Luther had to be you know, like an hour and a half down the road because he couldn't come there. Um, so he was um, definitely confined. He, he managed to sneak around more than is probably smart for him to do. But um, he had to just pay attention to the political climate. And the other, like Melanchthon and the others that were in Wittenberg, could they move around? Mm-hmm. Or because they were extensions of Luther? I guess really Melanchthon was the only one who stayed with him the whole time. Yeah, they were they were more they were more free. Um, you don't really hear about the same burdens being placed on them, and especially someone like Melanchthon who is more willing to say, if the Pope just admits that he has his position by human right rather than divine right, I'd love to keep a Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, so other people weren't as. Hot on him. Yeah. yeah. When did Melanchthon come to Wittenberg? Like 15, 19? Yeah, it's about then, yeah. Where, oh, uh, my question is more important than yours. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, where, where did Luther actually do most of his pastoral ministry, and for how long was he there? It, almost all of it's in Wittenberg. Almost all of it, yeah. Once he travels there, you know, from the monastery, that's where he is most of the time, except for, you know, these events where he has to be kidnapped and go to a castle for a little while. But Wittenberg is where he always returns to. Gotcha. Can you just talk a little bit about the relationship between Luther and Melanchthon? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a hot topic of debate. Um, whether they were on the same page, whether Melanchthon ended up throwing Luther under the bus uh, towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say they were... They were good friends. They, um, Melanchthon was a humanist, and Luther was trained in the scholastic theology, so they came at things very differently. But Luther fully supported the Augsburg Confession. Yeah. 
So, uh, the way Melanchthon's always been described to me is that he was Luther's protege. Yeah, and that's funny because um, Luther was obviously numero uno in this movement. But, so we tend to ask the question, was Melanchthon a follower of Luther? Like, did right. he? But, you know, back in, back in that day, nobody was asking that question. Yeah. Because Melanchthon was an extremely important scholar. I mean, he had the academic chops to um, do and say whatever he wanted, really. Um, Luther supported Melanchthon um, in, in the writing of the Augsburg Confessions. Augsburg Confession. Obviously, when um, when Melanchthon wrote the Loci Communes in 1521, Luther made the comment that this should be canonized, <laughs> like it, it should just be the Bible in this book that Melanchthon's written. Um, so there's a lot of support there at the beginning. There is a certain amount of development that seems to happen towards. Um, Melanchthon's later years, and part of that is born out of political exigencies, because Melanchthon had to be the one to try to say, how can I fit my teachings? Yeah, so that these things can work, and so that everybody won't get killed. Um, and he also starts getting into questions of, um, is the will free at all? Like, is there any way in which the will is free? And he's more open to um, leaving room for the will to be so free. So it becomes a third use of the law, some possibility of regenerated will. Would that be yeah, that's, a strong word from Wellington? I don't think that's too strong, no. Um, and, and that's why by the time you get to the formula of Concord in you know, 1560 or whatever, um, and even later, all of these debates are happening because you have camps that say, we're really following Luther. Right. And these camps that say, well, but Melanchthon has said this. Who was Flas Flasius? Is that right? He was the. He was he was more Luther. Yeah. Somebody than Luther. Yeah. In that in that second generation mm -hmm. against the Melanchthonians. Yeah. And there's a guy that comes along named Martin Chemnitz, who really does the the hard theological work of bringing these camps back together. Incarnation stuff and. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, he's he's got a huge tome on. Christology. Yeah. Um, you know, ongoing to the week, just on Zach, you know, conversation. I'm just getting kind of specific, but subtle difference between Luther and Melanchthon. That would help me clarify, clarify some ongoing questions that I have mm -hmm. and how Lutheranism developed after Luther's death. And as a small thing, this really is getting kind of specific, but when he was in Wartburg, uh, what happened in Wittenberg? Because there was the whole, the enthusiast went up and Melanchthon wrote the loci. It's like the cat was away and there was a little bit of chaos that yeah. happened and the peasants mm. began to be sown. Just kind of historical, theological pieces. But anyway. Okay, yeah. That's something you have to talk about later yeah. in class or whatever. I'd, I'd love some clarity on that for my own, to put some pieces in place. Yeah. And Hopefully we can bring some of that. And part of it, we, we can, you can even just turn to the formula of Concord and see how the lines were drawn um, after, especially Luther's death. And I think that helps to show you just how various things crystallized in, in both of their theologies. Uh, one, of the, you know, one of the things, like when Luther was gone in Wartburg, uh, Melanchthon just didn't have the constitution to, to come down with authority and to hold up, you know. Oh, yeah? He was probably 20. He was pretty young. I'm not exactly sure when he was, he was born. Young when he came, he was a, he was a prodigy. When he 
game in like 16 or something like that. Yeah. He always tried to rise to the challenge and take care of business, but he was, he was an academic. He kind of would have preferred to. Can you spell Melanchthon on the board for me? Oh, gosh. Um, I know he's the enthusiast. Crawlstop, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Went the whole way and became. Is that when all that Against the Enthusiast stuff was written? Yep. yep. That's actually in the movie Luther. Became a, I remember that. And I still haven't seen that. Like, oh, really? Uh, uh, what we call like a, a Pentecostal almost. Whatever. This guy who revered Luther and taught him to be in his way. There's all these pitchforks and fires when Luther comes back to Wittenberg. He's got a great name, uh, Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt. <laughs> <laughs> These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.